This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Politics is Everything, a podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Kara ong And I'm your host, Kyle Kondik, Managing Editor of Sabados Crystal Ball. In this episode, we are going to dig into the gubernatorial races happening this year. Kyle, I wonder if you can start us off by talking about what are some of the most competitive gubernatorial races and what's at stake in the elections this year? Yeah, so just to sort of set the set the table for it, you know, of course, we always talk about party control of the House and the Senate. Um, we talk less about the governorships in that sort of way because it's not like there's some sort of council of 50 state governors that, you know, helps govern the country collectively or something like that. You know, who a state's governor is matters a lot, of course, to the people living in that state, but it doesn't have kind of national implications that you do for, for Senate, for House. But of course, these are, um, these are important races um, and particularly important for the people who live in these given states. And so 50 state governorships, Republicans have 28 of them, Democrats have 22. Um, uh, rough, just a, sl- a sl- slight majority of people actually live under Democratic governors, opposed to Republican ones, um, because they have slightly more of the, the bigger states. Uh, and this election season, you've got 36 governors uh, on the ballot. Republicans are defending 20. Democrats are defending 16. Um, typically, the, the president's party, just like what happens in House and Senate races, uh, loses ground in governorships uh, in midterm elections. It's pretty common uh, trend throughout American history. Uh, 19 midterms since World War II. Uh, President's party has uh, either um, failed to gain any governorships or lost governorships in 18 of those 19 elections. Um, so there's only one exception where the President's party came out with more governorships than they went in. Um, so that's sort of the, the kind of you know, basic, basic overview. And, and there are some, uh, you know, w- one of the interesting things about this year is that as of right now, um, even though the Democrats control the White House, the two likeliest pickups in terms of governorships are both ones that Republicans hold. Um, open seats in blue states, Maryland and Massachusetts. Um, you've got outgoing popular Republican moderate governors in those states. Uh, and it looks like the Democrats should be able to pick up both of them. Um, however, there are many other kind of classic swing states that have competitive races this year. Um, Wisconsin toss-up race, Arizona toss-up race, Nevada toss-up race. Um, you've also got some other interesting contests in, in some of the other key swing states like Pennsylvania and Michigan. Um, but one thing that we sort of noticed about the math is that the most competitive races, uh, a lot of them seem like they're going to be happening out, out west, particularly, like I mentioned, Arizona, Nevada. Um, but, you know, sometimes the competitive gubernatorial races don't always line up with presidential partisanship. Um, you've got Democrats defending uh, a, a seat in, in Kansas, which is a red state. Um, Democrats are also defending a very competitive three-way race in blue state, Oregon. Um, New Mexico, a blue state, looks like it might have a very competitive gubernatorial race this year. So um, in some instances, these governorships, you know, comb- uh, sort of uh, uh, look like, uh, you know, the, the presidential and federal politics we're used to, but in other instances, they're kind of uh, dissimilar. And, you know, the fact that um, states like Maryland, Massachusetts have Republican governors, as we're talking right now, even though they're very democratic, shows that these races don't always um, sort of comport with the federal partisanship. Uh, so one of the things you mentioned is that there's more competition out West right now. And I want to dig into that a little bit more. Um, you, you're also noting um, this week in the crystal ball that 34 states um, currently hold their elections in midterm years. 
Two states, New Hampshire and Vermont, have two term years and hold elections both in midterm and presidential years. And then 14 states have elections in presidential election years. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how the year in which gubernatorial elections are held might impact electoral outcomes. And maybe tell us a little bit more about why we're seeing that competition, more, more competitive races out west. Sure. Um, uh, you know, there also are a handful of states that, that have elections in odd numbered years, too. So like Virginia is a great example. Um, they have their governorship. It's the year after the presidential election. Uh, Kentucky and Louisiana, a couple other states that, that have them in, in, in Mississippi in, in odd numbered years. And yeah, there's, then there's a handful that, that have elections in, in, in presidential years. And, you know, the, there is certainly there are big differences between a, a state in a presidential year and a midterm year in terms of turnout. You know, the presidential year is always is always higher. Uh, and so, you know, one of the longest winning streaks for any of the for any of the parties in a gubernatorial race is in Washington state. Um, Democrats have won that race many times in a row. And, you know, Washington has become uh, a fairly dem- pretty democratic state at the presidential level. You know, maybe if Washington had its gubernatorial elections in midterm years, maybe the Republicans would have won one of those if it had coincided with a, you know, a good Republican year like like 1994 or uh, or, or 2010. Um, and, you know, having it an odd numbered year two can also have, uh, you know, c- can also lead to some some interesting and, and different results that maybe uh, um, that maybe cut against, a, a, you know, state's partisanship with uh, um, with with, the, you know, the odd numbered election. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Kentucky and Louisiana have recently elected Democratic governors, even though those states are very red at the president at the presidential level. You know, if you hold those elections in presidential years, again, maybe it's a different different outcome. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I do think that contributes to it. And, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, the midterm governorships, uh, almost all the big states are in the midterm years. So I think I think of the nine of the 10 biggest states, I think all but North Carolina um, have their elections in the, in the gubernatorial elections in the, in the midterm year. And so the, the governorships, for the most part, are sort of decoupled from uh, presidential partisanship, which, you know, depending on your point of view, could be a good thing or a bad thing. Let me ask you, how does incumbency work in gubernatorial elections compared to congressional or presidential elections, and how might it impact the elections this year specifically? I think there's a general feeling um, that, you know, if you look at the statistics, it's probably not that much different in terms of the power of incumbency, in terms of winning and losing amongst the, the three categories of races. But I think there's a general feeling that that governors, that governors have an easier time, uh, even in a Kind of federalized, nationalized electoral environment from uh, from sort of breaking off from a state's presidential partisanship and maybe being able to run more as their own person, and, and that the incumbency can be um, pretty pretty valuable in, in that regard. And I think it does show up in the results in that you know you do have. You know, currently there are only six senators out of the out of the 100 who represent states their party did not win for president, and and, and most of those states are, are, are or several of them are pretty pretty uh, competitive states overall, like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Um, uh, whereas, you know, for the governorships, um, you've got, as I mentioned, Democratic governors in like Kentucky and Louisiana. You've got all these blue state Republican governors in the Northeast, Massachusetts, uh, New Hampshire, even though New Hampshire is kind of a kind of a swing state. Still, um, Vermont, which is a very Democratic state, has a Republican governor, Maryland. 
Um, and uh, I think that that you know th- those there were unique circumstances that led to the election of those incumbents in the first place, but they've been able to sort of carve out their own identity as as a um, you know as someone who's different from the national party, and therefore they're they're able to uh, you know continue to uh, continue to, to succeed. Um, you know, over the last uh, uh, five midterm elections. Um, of the of the states that have changed hands, uh, about eighty percent of them were open seat elections as opposed to uh, incumbents losing. Um, and so, you know, it's it's just a lot easier to flip an open seat than it is to beat an incumbent. And it looks like um, about three quarters of the governorships this year are going to feature an incumbent running. And so that you know, if in fact there's not a whole lot of turnover this year, which is I guess probably my best bet at this point or best guess at this point. Um, it may be that the high number of incumbents running is, is part of the reason why, you know, back in like 2002, there were a bunch of open seats and a lot of turmoil otherwise. And um, there was a party change in roughly half the gubernatorial races that year. You wouldn't expect that this year just because there are so uh, there's so many incumbents running. So we know that the economy and evaluations of the party of con- the party in control of the White House impacts how voters will cast a ballot in both presidential and midterm elections. Um, you write this week um, that the president's party has lost uh, governorships in 16 of the 19 midterms since World War II. I wonder if you can talk a little bit a bit talk a little bit about how you think the state of the economy and President Biden's low approval rating might impact gubernatorial elections this year. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, if if in fact this turns into a you know good Republican year, which I sort of still feel that way, even though there have been some more positive signs for Democrats, I'd say over the last month or two than, than maybe there were previously. Um, but still, there's a lot of gravity that sort of breaks against the um, the White House party in these midterm years, and, and again, it shows up in the House and Senate generally, and it also generally shows up in 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 the uh, in, in the gubernatorial races. But then you also have to pair that with the, the incumbency statistic that. It's just so much harder, historically speaking, to beat an incumbent governor than it is to flip an open seat. And you know, many of the times when you see a big swing toward one party or the other, it's on the basis of a lot of open seats flipping in the midterm year, not necessarily a lot of a lot of incumbents losing. I mean, there is usually at least one or two incumbents who lose in a given year, like in 2018, Scott Walker, Wisconsin lost his Republican, lost his bid for a third term. But many of the other states, states that flipped that year were open seats. So um, and, and the open seats maybe then tend to break toward um, toward the uh, uh, t- away from the presidential party. Um, again, what's a little bit different about this year and why it might be sort of a strange result historically is that, yes, you've got some vulnerable open seat governorships, but there are a couple of them are in really blue states that just happen to have Republican governors right now. And so even in a poor environment, you know, the Republicans don't seem to have nominated or, or don't seem either they haven't nominated or they don't seem likely to nominate particularly strong candidates in those states. And so that gives Democrats, you know, probably a couple of governorships in their back pocket as they try to, you know, break the normal trend and actually net governorships this year, which is a possibility. But Democrats have a lot of uh, vulnerable um, seats to hold defend themselves. So you've noted that Republicans control currently control 28 governorships and Democrats control 22. Um, and even though the GOP has more governorships, a majority of the a slight majority of the population of all 50 states, uh, 51%, live in states with Democratic governors. I wonder if you can speak to how the difference in partisan control of governorships might impact representation. 
And if you can talk a little bit more about how often governorships are changing party hands and why that might matter. Uh, a lot of states have uh, pretty long streaks of one party, you know, one party winning the governorship. Uh, 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 I think it's South Dakota is one that goes back decades for the Republicans. Uh, Oregon and Washington um, both have very long um, Democratic streaks. But then you also have states that, again, that don't, you know, that 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 end up changing a lot. Like states like Michigan and Pennsylvania are pretty notable for um, kind of uh, just sort of switching off from one part or the other, that it's sort of hard for a party to, uh, you know, maybe elect two straight governors that usually there's a sort of ping pong going back and forth um, when there's a, you know, when, when particularly when there's a, a governor is, is, is term limited. You know, in terms of representation, I mean, I think that um, particularly in, you know, we've got these Republican governors in some blue states. I think in some ways those governors maybe trim the ambitions a little bit of the state legislature, although in some, in some states like Massachusetts and Maryland, the legislatures are so democratic that they actually have um, veto-proof majorities. And so the governor doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of power to prevent the legislature from doing something if if the, the Democrats are united. Now, of course, you know, parties are not always united when they, uh, um, you know, when, when, they're, when they're trying to pass legislation, um, even in, you know, even in, in, in generally kind of one party states or at least one party um, with the legislature, you know, governors also in in most states have some sort of role to play in redistricting, and that of course has become such an important topic, um, particularly as you know you look at the U.S. U.S. House elections and uh, um, the power of gerrymandering, and so you know a growing number of states have adopted some sort of. Uh, independent or nonpartisan way of redistricting, but but the governor of, often will have a role, particularly in states that do it traditionally, in which you know the uh, uh, the, the district maps are basically just like any other piece of legislation, and the governor can decide to to, to veto it, the legislation or not. Um, uh, and, and you know, so so th- they play an important role uh, in, in in that way. But um, you know, in, in in some of these states, for both gerrymandering and and uh, also, for reasons of like population distribution, like a state like Wisconsin, for instance, um, you know, the R- Republicans have a real hammerlock on the state legislature there. Um, and again, gerrymandering has helped them, but also the, the sort of erosion of Democratic strength in rural and small town areas has also made their, their sort of population distribution kind of inefficient. Um, and so in a state like Wisconsin, you know, the, the fact that they have a Democratic governor there is kind of the only thing preventing Republicans from, you know, from doing essentially whatever they want. And, you know, so so that those, that's the stake of the election. If you're a Democrat, it's like, well, we got to get Tony Evers reelected, not because a, a Democratic governor there is going to usher in some new age of liberal policymaking in Wisconsin, but rather just to sort of hold the line against whatever the, the Republicans want to do. So um, that's the case in, 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 uh, in Wisconsin. I think that's the case in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, Michigan uh, uh, is, a, is a little bit of a different story in that Michigan does have nonpartisan redistricting now. And Democrats may actually have a shot at the state legislature in that state. Um, and it's also a great test as to, you know, the, because the Democrats are suffering from some similar kinds of problems across the Midwest in terms of this, you know, being sort of confined to big city areas. Um, you know, Michigan with with fair redistricting now, um, does that uh, uh, does that make up for um, some of the population disparity problems they have in that state? I guess we'll um, we'll we'll find out both this year and throughout the rest of the decade. So Kansas uh, voters rejected a measure by nearly 20 percentage points last week that would have allowed the Republican-controlled legislature to tighten restrictions or ban abortions outright. 
Um, I wonder how you see uh, abortion and other issues uh, playing a role in gubernatorial elections this year. Uh, look, I mean, what the, what the court did in the Dobbs decision was effectively, for the time being, kicked the, the abortion decision back to the individual states. And so, you know, different states are going to come to wildly different ideas about what should be done about abortion. And then we'll just have to wait and see if, in fact, there is some sort of federal um, protections of abortion rights or federal ban on abortion rights that ends up getting passed at some point in the future. Uh, you know, the, the filibuster being in place in the Senate probably makes it. Uh, unlikely at the moment that, that something like that would happen, but we'll just have to sort of wait and see. But, um, you know, not every state um, is has the ability to for, for uh, ballot issues to, to go on in front of the voters. I mean, I guess I personally think that abortion is sort of the classic issue that arguably should be decided in statewide issues. But but again, not a lot of states don't really have the ability for that to happen. Even in Kansas, it was only that uh, um, the state legislature decided to put it on uh, the ballot because they were they were trying to get the voters to essentially give them more power to regulate or to ban abortion, and that didn't happen. Um, uh, and and you know of the of the states you know uh, on the ballot this year, it looks like we're, we're probably going to have a big abortion ballot issue in Michigan. Um, uh, that uh, it, it appears is going to get on the ballot, although as, as we're speaking now, I don't think that's been formally determined yet. And I would suspect in the future, we're going to have more ballot issues on, on abortion where they're, um, it's possible to have them. But um, I think abortion is also t- going to take on an outsized role in these gubernatorial campaigns. And, uh, you know, you've got pretty big differences between the parties on this issue. You know, the, the Democrats aren't really supportive of, of many, if, if any, um, restrictions on abortion rights and Republicans have become, um, uh, you know, Republicans don't really support any exceptions to abortion bans or, or very few exceptions um, to, on, on abortion bans. And so these are big issues that come up in these uh, gubernatorial races. And um, I suspect they're going to be important for years to come um, as the states kind of figure out where they are on abortion and, and the federal, you know, federal officials decide whether they're going to actually intervene or not. Because we went from having obviously pretty robust protections for abortion rights in um, rooted in the Constitution, and, and those don't exist anymore after you know after Roe v. Wade went away. So it's a big change, and it's something that's going to have to be figured out on a state to state basis, at least as we're talking now. Are there any other important issues that you're seeing bubble up in in competitive gubernatorial races? Uh, you know, there's a, I think that, that there's 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 often a, a focus on uh, issues of crime. Uh, I think that's something that uh, Republicans feel like, in particular, that they can run on, that they can sort of. Um, paint Democrats as soft on uh, on crime issues, and so um, you've got, to, um, for instance, in Nevada, the uh, Republican nominee is the Clark County and Las Vegas uh, Sheriff Joe Lombardo, and so that's like a natural issue to come up is sort of the, this uh, fight between him and the um, Democratic incumbent governor there, Steve Sisolak, over um, over over uh, crime issues. Um, so that's something I think that is that that has come up and will come up. You know, there are always you know little scandals and things like that that come up. In some of these races. Um, one thing that's probably helpful, all these incumbents, is that um, often state governments have to, you know, they, they can't, uh, they have balanced budget uh, restrictions for them for, for state governments. So they can't deficit spend the way that the federal government can. And so, you know, when there's not enough money or there's not enough revenue coming in, they have to make really tough choices about programs. And that can um, that can cause problems for the incumbent party or the incumbent governor. Um, but right now, the government coffer or state government coffers are kind of overfilled with money because of federal stimulus. 
And so uh, you've got a lot of incumbents and a lot of them are popular, I think, in part because they haven't had to cut anything. And in fact, they, act, they actually have some money sloshing around that they can um, that they can try to direct to certain places uh, that that might be politically um, popular. So that's a you know, there will be future gubernatorial elections where we will be talking about governors who had to make painful choices being in trouble. That doesn't seem to be a real big figure feature of this particular election for the reasons I mentioned. So in a previous episode of Politics is Everything, you discussed the role of political experience in Senate races. And I wonder if you can talk about whether or not political experience matters in the same ways for gubernatorial candidates. You know, we have had a lot of, and this is sort of more anecdotal than anything else, but we've had a lot of uh, uh, kind of outsider, particularly rich, basically rich people um, run for and win governorships. And it hasn't just, you know, I think that the, 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 archetype for that kind of candidate is is on the Republican side. But um, you've seen a number of Democrats um, uh, able to do that as well. I guess a, a great example is J.B. Pritzker is running for a second term in Illinois. He's, he's extremely wealthy. And in fact, he beat Bruce Rauner, a Republican who also was extremely wealthy. Rauner won in 2014. Pritzker beat him in, uh, in 2018. Um, Ned Lamont is another person who's very personally wealthy, who um, became famous in politics in 2006 for beating Joe Lieberman in a in the Connecticut Democratic Senate primary, and then uh, um, Lieberman came back and actually ended up winning, um, you know, w- winning the state or uh, w- winning re-election as an um, independent candidate um, that year. Um, Rick Scott, who is now in the U.S. Senate, but he got first elected to um, the Florida governorship in 2010 as a political outsider. He was someone who had no experience. Um, so there, you know, there are a number of governors across the country who don't have experience, but they might have, um, experience in the private sector, uh, that may, you know, basically be germane to, or germane to being a, you know, a state, statewide executive. Um, I think sometimes the skill set that a governor needs might be a little bit different than a senator. Um, sometimes you hear senators complain who, who've been governors before that they really miss having the kind of executive authority that they enjoyed as a governor. Uh, Mark Warner of Virginia is, is, a, is a great example of someone who's been in the Senate for a while, but he's sometimes openly mused about coming, coming back home and running for running for governor. I, seems like he's probably not going to do that at this point, but um, his name has come up in, in the past. And uh, Joe Manchin, who is kind of the decider in the Senate these days, he also kind of talks wistfully about his days as a uh, as a governor. So, um, you know, the the uh, uh, I mean, I think the same kind of pluses and minuses for being a, a kind of a newcomer candidate um, exist for gubernatorial races as they do for Senate. You know, you don't have any uh, necessarily background in politics and you aren't vetted at the same time, you don't have a voting record. Um, you may also be sort of used to exercising a kind of executive authority of as a governor, if you're the, you know, CEO of a big, big company or something, you know, of course, another great example of a, of a newcomer, uh, governor is Glenn Youngkin in Virginia who, who, uh, um, had not run for anything before winning the 2021 race. And I think it probably was helpful to him that he didn't have a, um, you know, that he wasn't like a state senator or a, a state delegate um, in Virginia because he would have had a voting record then and he, and he didn't have one. So he didn't have to he could sort of make his own way in his campaign. So um, you do see a lot of those kinds of candidates and it's not just on the Republican side. You see it on the Democratic side, too. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for taking the time to give us this rundown on the state of gubernatorial races. And our listeners can find out more and dig in a little bit more to the details on Sabato's Crystal Ball. Thanks, Kara.
Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to CLO3S at virginia.edu. Until next time.